Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and thought leaders on issues that are important to those governing organizations. My guest today is Mark Frigo. Mark is Distinguished Professor Emeritus and Founding Director of the Strategic Risk Management Lab in the Kelstadt Graduate School of Business at DePaul University in Chicago. He serves on the board of directors of a leading cybersecurity company as an advisor to senior executive teams and boards of directors of Fortune 500 companies and international organizations, including United Nations agencies in Geneva, Switzerland. He's the author of seven books and over 125 articles in leading business journals, including the Harvard Business Review. He's a certified public accountant, a certified management accountant, and chartered global management accountant, and holds a PhD in econometrics. Mark is a pioneer in the development of the new and evolving body of knowledge in strategic risk management, where he leads research on strategy and strategic risk management at high-performance companies. This is the focus of our discussion today. Welcome, Mark. Great to be with you today, David. Well, let's begin here by setting the table. What is strategic risk management from your perspective? Uh, Let me begin with some four characteristics of strategic risk management to set the definition. First of all, strategic risk management focuses on creating as well as protecting value, which is very consistent with your thinking. And uh, secondly, it it represents the intersection and the integration of strategy and risk management, which we find to be leading practice in companies successfully executing risk governance. And third, very important, David, it is a continual process, a continual process which enables management teams and boards to gain greater skill in risk management and risk governance. A continuous process builds that skill every year and on an ongoing basis. And number four, it's a necessary and it's an often missing element of enterprise risk management and risk governance. So you mentioned strategic risk management. Is that something that's a constant or is it something that's changing and evolving? Because you talk about this continual process as the third stage of it or the third element to it. Is the concept itself something that's evolving as well? Strategic risk management is a new body of knowledge that is continuing to evolve. And it naturally was developed and evolved from a strategy framework uh, based on the book Driven that I published with Joel Lippmann in 2007. framework in the book, uh, one of the foundations of the framework is vigilance to forces of change, which really means that companies that are high-performing companies are really good at managing the threats and the opportunities, risks taking in forces of change. So we found in the, when, after the book was published, as I presented the framework to directors and management teams, they naturally started honing in on the risks in their strategy. It was a natural progression. And then, of course, in 2008, the global financial crisis jolted boards and executive teams to take a closer look at their risk governance. And I remember distinctly presenting the framework at a conference in New York City and also in Chicago and in Milan, Italy in November of 2008. And when I presented that section on visual the forces of change to the audience, I could tell their attention uh, significantly increased. They were drawn to that concept, especially in 2008, as we remember what was going on during that period of time. So since that time, my work in strategic risk management was based on the founding of the 
Strategic Risk Management Lab at DePaul University, where we really are trying to develop and share leading practices in risk management and governance and integrating strategy with risk management. It also led to my work with RIMS, Risk Insurance Management Society, as a charter member of their Strategic Risk Management Development Council, where I co-authored their RIMS Strategic Risk Management Implementation Guide and was able to meet Hans Leso from the Lego Group, which led to the development of the work I've done on documenting what's been done at the Lego Group on strategic risk management. Yeah, and I definitely want to spend some time talking with you about that. So let me let me spend a little more time on the book here, and then I want to get to Lego because I think that's that's such a great example and great story for the people who are listening. The book was a study of high performing companies, and I and I think you guys had access to some incredible data. About the same time that this book was published, uh, Michael Keener, who was at Columbia Business School, and I had done a study looking at whether boards understood the risk infrastructures and whether there was a good relationship between boards and, and risk infrastructures at companies. And I think what we found back then was, and maybe it's no surprise after what happened in the financial crisis, that there wasn't. And I think that part of what we discovered in that and what I read in the book was this awareness that came about of the value that be, can be created by understanding this better. So your book uses something called a return-driven strategy. And the end goal of that return-driven strategy is to ethically maximize wealth, if I'm, if I'm using the expression properly. Can you talk a little bit about this, this sort of pyramid of elements that leads an organization to ethically maximize wealth and, and what that term means to you as you, as you talk to companies? So the, um, the book and the framework, Return-Driven Strategy, was based upon uh, a 10-year period of intensive research where we used a very sophisticated database, the uh, Credit Suisse Holt database, to screen uh, 20,000 companies for, for 30 years of data and identified high-performing companies. And then we had our, our research teams to, uh, study each of the individual companies we identified as high-performance companies and uh, identifying the strategic activities that were common and the pattern that was common to all those companies, regardless of industry or geographic location. From that, we published an, an, a series of articles in strategic finance and also other uh, journals like Harvard Business Review. And that led to the book Driven. The subtitle of that book is three parts, business strategy, human actions, and the creation of wealth. And the creation of wealth is what you uh, inquired about as far as tenant one. Tenant one are three very powerful words, ethically, maximize wealth. Ethically means to adhere to the ethical parameters of your constituents and communities as they define it. And maximize wealth means to create maximum value from your resources, tangible and intangible resources, including the commitment of your customers and your employees. A wealth is simply defined as accumulated value creation. As far as the criteria, one of the one of the things we had to address is, you know, we were looking at a very important research question, which is what can we learn from high performing companies? And to do that, we had to define what do we mean by a high performance company? And there we use three criteria. The first criteria was superior and sustainable cash flow ROI, meaning at least 10 years in a row, consecutive years of cash flow ROI greater than the cost of capital. Number two, disciplined reinvestment in the company. Reinvesting in the company if you're holding those superior ROIs and continuing to create value. And that includes investments in R&D and innovation. And number three, which is an outcome 
superior relative total shareholder returns, which are driven by the first two criteria. The idea of shareholder value creation uh, would be driven by ROI plus discipline uh, investment growth. We used in that study the uh, Credit Suisse Holt financial metrics, which uh, our research colleague Bart Madden, you know, played a role in developing in his uh, during his career. And we also used as another framework the life cycle framework developed by Bart Madden in our study to understand how a company reinvests. In, in the company and innovation strategy during different phases of its uh, rise and fall. And in this case, we're looking at the rise of valuable companies. I think Bart's quickly becoming the most mentioned podcast guest I've had because his his ideas keep coming up over and over again. And I think, you know, obviously uh, the fact that they've endured so long and continue to prove to be valuable is testimony to to the importance of them. And And I was particularly encouraged to see how that had even made it into the research that you've done and the writing you've done back uh, in 2007. So again, three words you mentioned, ethically maximize wealth. Ethical is one of those things that, that people sometimes you know, don't consider as being important. But the book starts off by saying that there's an undeniable financial impact from business ethics on performance. How do, how do you explain that to, to boards and organizations? So if you look at it, unfortunately, the same story keeps playing on the uh, headlines of, of the Wall Street Journal and the uh, financial media. Time and time again, we see companies falter when they take shortcuts and they violate the ethical parameters of their constituents and communities. The stock market will punish a company radically in that regard. So will customers, so will suppliers, employees do not want to be engaged or give their careers to a company that's unethical. Uh, so I, we, we look at the idea of ethics. Ethics and the adherence to ethics is not going to guarantee a great business, but it's going to guarantee you're not going to destroy a great business. Mm. And that's the first thing we l list in our pyramid, ethically. If you, if you forget about that dimension, ethical business conduct, you can forget about the rest of the strategy framework because you're definitely not going to be a successful long-term value creator. Yeah, and the long term is so dependent upon trust that people have in whatever form of capital they're providing that those ethical lapses, you, know, you can see that in the data. Um, I won't mention particular company names, but they're certainly out there where you can see that the market begins to not trust them. And so their performance relative to a peer, maybe in the financial terms, is equal, but in terms of reward and stock price is greatly diminished. That was pretty important to find that in your lead chapter in the book. Scarce resources include our ability to take risk. So how is this approach, this return-driven strategy, helpful in the allocation of things like, like risk or any other scarce capital? You know, we say, when we say wealth creation, David, uh, obviously for a company, the uh, shareholder value creation is a primary uh, metric. But we have to remember that we're also creating wealth and well-being as a successful business for our employees in their careers for um, our suppliers, for our customers in the offerings that we provide to them and create value for them, and also for society, because we're creating wealth mm. in society that is itself part of the economic growth of the company and provides opportunity globally. So uh, as far as uh, our capital providers, the article that you and I did very recently, 
achieving purpose through innovation, I think was very insightful as far as looking at stakeholders as capital providers. I think that's very insightful and every company should think about how they're doing that or engaging with that thought process in their strategy and in their risk management. And in words like ethics and stakeholders tend to drive people to a place of thinking they aren't related to business success. They're soft, fuzzy terms that people bring forward who don't understand business. But when we reframe them in ways like you've talked about, they become integral to the work. And, and you had mentioned earlier Lego. And not only do I love this, you know, the, the whole idea of Lego as a metaphor for, for being able to change and innovate and reshape and, and reconstruct, uh, it ties in so well with these ideas of, of corporate fade, continuous innovation, responding to threats and opportunities. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because you wrote you know, just an outstanding article describing the process that, that they go through because they're not just looking at risk as downside. They're not just looking at protecting. They're also looking at the opportunity. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Because I think there are some, some practical steps people are going to take from your article and from Lego, what Lego was doing. And this is, this is back even, I think, about the time you were writing the book, or maybe just after that they were engaged in these. So they seem to be pretty far ahead of what others are doing today. Yes, I, I believe uh, Lego is a leading practice in strategic risk management and risk governance. Lego, as you know, is a very successful company. It's very innovative in the work it does, and it views strategic risk management as a value creator for the company, not as a cost. Most companies view risk management as a cost, you know, compliance, whatever it right, might be. Right. So I, I think I remember I had the opportunity to work with uh, Hans Leso, the director of strategic risk management at Lego Group, to describe and analyze the process. And that article led to a case study at Harvard Business School, as well as uh, additional work. But you had mentioned the idea, it did definitely, and it continues to benefit the Lego group uh, in their success as a business, but it's also benefited other companies. So after that article was published in 2012, I believe, I had calls from all kinds of organizations asking me if I could help them adapt the Lego methodology. Right. Well, that's and a good sign. No, it is a good sign and actually did it for a number of companies uh, to help them take some of the tools. The, the philosophy of the risk management process at Lego Group was to create and protect value, which was exactly, you know, the type of work that I was working on at the, in, the, in the research lab at DePaul. And there's, there's three tools I think would be valuable to boards of directors and chief risk officers. One is in the article, we describe what they call the Lego risk management umbrella. Right. where they added strategic risk as a risk management element in 2006, along with their operational safety, hazard, legal, and IT risk and other uh, areas. That's when, the reason I said earlier, David, that strategic risk management is a necessary and often missing element of ERM. Hmm. I think that that's what I learned from working with the Lego group. Another very powerful tool is to see how Lego developed its process. So they began with, okay, first we're going to look at our enterprise risk management. How we have to continue. We have to include strategic risk assessment in our ERM processes. And then we're going to work downstream to look at how it affects the budget. And here's where we used, uh, where Lego used Monte Carlo simulations. Hans is a mathematician and I'm an econometrician. So we both could have relate to that. It just gives them a quantitative way of looking at how risk impacts their financial. But then the most important part was they went not just downstream, they went upstream. 
They looked at the projects and how they approved them, which they defined an active risk and opportunity planning process. And then they went further upstream to the process they called preparing for uncertainty, where they use scenario analysis and another tool that's valuable to boards and executive teams, which would be the Lego PAPA model, which gives a uh, strategic response based upon speed of change and likelihood of different risks. That particular framework, the Lego PAPA matrix, and model has been very uh, well received by boards of directors because it gives them actionability. Should we should we prepare? Should we act now? Should we adapt slowly, or should we park the risk temporarily? Those are the four dimensions of the framework. And and I think people who are used to say these quadrants in the risk space of impact and probability, this is really speed and probability. If I'm if right. I'm not mistaken, so it's it's really getting to the strategic element of things that are changing and what their prioritization is. I think one of the quadrants, which was slow change but high likelihood, is kind of like the gray rhinos that Michelle Worker talks about, but mm-hmm. most entities don't respond to those. Yet in this particular PAPA model, the word assigned to it is adapt. So how do right. they how do they how does that fit into the framework? If if somebody is identifying things in this, which again I, I think fit the gray rhino model that Michelle's put together, what's the process of adapting? Because we use this expression prepare for uncertainty. This isn't necessarily uncertainty because it's high likelihood, but, but how do they plan to adapt? So I think we look at the prepare versus act, which is on the top okay. of the right. framework. And you know, both are both are fast to occur, speed of change. One is low in likelihood and one is high in likelihood. Obviously, if it's high likelihood and high speed of change, that's where immediate action is necessary. Analogous to looking at the risk of a hurricane versus a tornado. Hmm. Both can have a big impact on risk. One happens much quicker, a tornado does. You only have a minutes or sometimes to react and sometime in a hurricane unless you have a long time usually days to react so prepare means having the preparedness staged in the right time frame so with the example you gave in those those types of type of risk it has to be a prioritized and a sequence time horizon for how fast we prepare for that particular risk it, it, it would depend on the specific risk though okay but you you did in this article, I think, talk about Lego's attitude of changeability, which I think fit into both their growth and innovation strategies. And, and the, the idea of Lego as a metaphor for this, I thought was perfect. So what is an attitude of changeability? How does that fit into strategic risk management? We have this idea of adaptability is, I think, a key driver of any successful company. If you look at the management team, if they're, if the management team are very rigid in the way they operate, they're complacent, they're bureaucratic, that tends to give them less and less adaptability to the market, to other factors that are going to affect them. And I think a company like, in the case of Lego Group, the Lego Group is very entrepreneurial. Hmm. It's actually a privately owned company, owned by you know family foundation. And it's a company that, and we find, by the way, that return-driven strategy framework is very entrepreneurial. Oh, good. If you look at the at the comparison of bureaucratic versus entrepreneurial thinking, people, managers, executive teams in a company, I think you see more adaptability to the entrepreneurial side versus the bureaucratic bureaucratic side, and that's a that's something that I think is valuable to to use in risk assessment. Let's confront the brutal facts. How how bureaucratic is our thinking versus entrepreneurial, and how can we change in the right direction to be more adaptable? I'm doing a current article on strategic valuation where I'm looking on some, some of the work of some top investors 
And one of the things they look at when they're interviewing companies and the management teams of companies as they invest money in the company would be adaptability, management skill, knowledge building, knowledge building culture of the organization as Mark Madden mentions in his book. Those are some of the things that relate to adaptability. I think the idea of knowledge building culture that Bart Madden mentions in his book, and we mentioned in our article in Strategic Finance, that's a powerful way of looking at adaptability. Well, and you, you used the expression earlier, vigilance to forces of change. And I, and I love that expression, the vigilance, which means you're always on watch. You're always on watch for, for these forces of change that are happening. You also just a second ago talked about bureaucratic versus innovative cultures. And Michelle Gelfand, who has written about things called tight and loose cultures and was a guest in an earlier podcast episode, one of the things she talked about was that these tight cultures, which can be more bureaucratic and control focused, come about when an organization feels that it's under threat, or it might be a political economy feels that it's under threat. And this idea of being prepared for uncertainty or the vigilance to forces of change to me seems to reduce the likelihood that you would get to a place where you feel under threat because you've been anticipating this. So it makes it more likely that the innovative culture that you described will stay in place and not be replaced by a culture that's that's trying to protect against further damage from something something that wasn't wasn't expected. So there's a really nice tie-in between what you're talking about and what some of these other authors have looked at in terms of either how we work together or how we create value. So I think this is a great example. The Lego the Lego story was also in strategic finance. I'll, I'll try to put a link up to that the, the case study that you did because that's back in uh, 2012, I think that one was written. And, and that's just, it's a really good one, which gets me to this next question that I had for you is when our listeners finish with an episode like this, I, I'd like them to have some very specific things to take back into the boardroom with them, some practical things. Somebody who's starting on this and says, I like this idea, this return-driven strategy, or I like the way in which Lego put this Papa model together, or the notion of active risk and opportunity planning. What kind of guidance would you give them to start the conversations within their boardroom? That's, that's a great question, David. Uh, I would highly recommend the recent COSO research report that I published aptly titled Creating and Protecting Value, Understanding and Implementing Enterprise Risk Management. That was published in 2020. Uh, it's, it was specifically designed for boards of directors and chief risk officers. It's available on the COSO website. I can also send it to them. And you can also post it on your website as well. It's a research report that includes description of a strategic risk assessment process, which I mentioned earlier, that yeah. continual process yep. that builds the skill level in companies, management teams, and boards. It also gives a framework related to that, uh, the return-driven strategy framework is a strategy framework, and then there's a strategic risk management framework that accompanies it. This process has been vetted by boards of directors and executive teams around the world, and also it's something that includes commentary and case examples from companies. So we have in that uh, keys to success. So I would recommend uh, that boards of directors get a, a, get a copy of that. It's on PDF form, easily available, and circulate that among their board of directors and their executive team and identify how is the best way to adapt some of those particular tools and approaches in their company. And I think they'll, they'll, they'll get a lot of value out of it. Just a quick note, COSO is an organization that uh, is a thought leader in enterprise risk management. It's composed of five organizations, the American Accounting Association, the American Institute of CPAs, the Financial Executive International, the Institute of Management Accountants, and the Institute of 
internal auditors. And in fact, that organization, COSO itself, their board of directors uses this approach in their own risk assessment. Yeah, and I think their updated guidance gets more towards what you're talking about here, towards how it's used for value creation as opposed to just a control function, where, where I think some places, when they instituted enterprise risk management in the first version of COSO, may have been more towards a compliance use of it. And, and that leaves so much on the table, which I think, again, your study of these companies that's that's in the book, as well as the, the articles that you've written, helps to demonstrate how, how valuable it can be. So let me get to some more work that you're doing, which is a series of articles in Strategic Finance Magazine, one of which you were kind enough to include me, you mentioned it's targeting the C-suite, or it seems to me anyway, to be targeting the C-suite, in particular, the finance function. What would be the overall goal of that series as it relates to you know, strategic risk management, return-driven strategy, and everything that we've discussed so far? Is there an end goal to, to that whole series? Yes, I, I began this series in 2018. And as I mentioned, the return-driven strategy initiative asked the question or tried to address the question, what can we learn from high-performing companies? This initiative addresses the question, how can companies create greater long-term sustainable value, which includes, by the way, risk management and risk governance. So I started the article series with a co-author article I did with uh, Dominic Barton, at the time head of McKinsey and Company, where we integrated some of the work that McKinsey Global Institute has been doing in long-term value creation companies, as well as some of the work at F FCLT Global. And that set the stage for the series. The series includes a number of different articles. Uh, the more recent article was the one that you and I had done together on achieving corporate purpose through innovation, where we have a, a section uh, co-authored by Bart Madden. We address avoiding corporate short-termism. We also have an article and we look at strategic risk management, which I co-authored in uh, the uh, January tw 21 issue. And also with the Bart Madden, I did life cycle article with him and uh, uh, integrating return driven strategy with the life cycle analysis, which is a powerful risk management framework. And finally, one other article that's in that series uh, is on the financial value of brands. Remembering that brands and reputation are very valuable resources that need to be developed, protected, as well as created in any organization. Yeah, and even even bigger portion of, of market valuation, it only seems to be growing in terms of percent of actual market value that's that's on this intangible side, which gets back to this idea of ethically maximizing wealth, which which we started off very early on. Do you hope to change mindsets or do you hope to give tools? What's the what's the hope in the in the series of articles? Is it both maybe? So I think it's probably both. I think, you know, I looked at, I, I did a statement of my my purpose, if you will. Hmm. And when I work with management teams, executive teams, my students, uh, other thought leaders like yourself, and hopefully that we do have the same like thinking. My, my mission or my purpose is to help people think differently in a positive way, meaning creating, be, being able to create greater value and in a powerful way, being able to do more with less resources, hmm. uh, judo strategy, if you will. Right. I think that's the key. The key is a way of thinking, but the way of thinking also requires some tools that I mentioned earlier during our discussion: the return to the strategy framework, the strategic risk assessment process, some of the legal tools. All that together, way of thinking and the tools are a powerful combination for uh, helping companies create greater long-term sustainable value. And you mentioned in the Lego article about their ability with this tool to take more risks. 
And I think that the, the interesting thing, getting back to the comment you just made about the use of resources, that's a choice a board can make. We want to take more risk using the same amount of capital or the same amount of capacity to take risk, or do we want to release some of the capital? Either way, you're getting to a better return in the organization. So, so it's a positive all around. I've never found it even a close calculation when you look at the value of doing something like you've described relative to the return that you can gain back on the use of capital. It's, it's one of those interesting exercises that I think people are sometimes amazed by how much of a return they can get on a better understanding of, of risk and in, in integrating into the strategic process. So let me ask you one quick question here. I know that people can Google the Strategic Risk Management Lab at DePaul. Is there a place that they could go to online to find the, the specific papers that you've written? Do you have a web address to give them? My website, markfrigo.com, would be a website they can access articles. Also, sign up for my newsletter. Great. Uh, also, they can feel free to send an email to me at mfrigo at depaul.edu, and I'd be glad to send those articles to them. Yeah, no, this is great. And I, and I hope people will dig into this because it, it is one of those things that once you start to understand the value that's created through these methods, it becomes as important as just about any other input into the strategic process and, and, and takes a position, um, which I think was discovered at LEGO, as an equal to all these other conversations. So Mark, this is great. I really appreciate your time today. I look forward to more conversations with you in the future. And I encourage anyone who's listening today Dig into this work more. Uh, you'll find that your corporation benefits from it. So thank you again, Mark. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day.